This is Steve Stein, and welcome back to another edition of Inside Asia. This week, we turn our sights on education. It ranks alongside food, shelter, and job opportunity as a foundation requirement for any progressive society. Yet the very tenets of traditional education and the perceived importance of a formal degree are increasingly the subject of scrutiny and in some cases derision. I'm mentioning this just hours before boarding a flight back to the U.S., where I'll have the honor and pleasure of watching my daughter graduate from a prestigious American college. As a proud father, I can say that it was well worth the investment, but for millions of people the world over, the price of education and the results generated oftentimes run at odds to market expectations. The universal question being asked is this, do high schools and universities effectively prepare students for a world rife with change, disruption, and the unpredictable impact of artificial intelligence or not? To help me answer these questions and more, I spoke with Crystal Lim Lange, a self-described future readiness expert who, in partnership with her husband, Dr. Gregor Lim Lange, have created a business to help students and organizations cope with the pressures of modern life and learning. I kicked off our conversation by asking Crystal to tell us a little about herself, how she wound up in the education space, and what compels her to think about the sector's reinvention. I've actually never had a job that I've been qualified to do, in a way. So <laughs> I've had seven careers in my life, and I never tr had any formal training for each of my careers. So even my first career was in investment banking at UBS, but um, I was a law student, and I kind of blagged my way into that job. I was actually stealing sausage rolls from a recruitment talk, and I got caught by the MD, and he said to me, you know, what are you doing here? And I told him, uh, kind of like, I made up a story, and he listened, and he said, you know, I don't believe a word of what you said, but you're pretty good at telling stories, so you should be an investment banker. So that was the start of my career in actually like learning that the hard skills aren't as important as the soft skills are. And that in a way has informed the trajectory of my career where I've been doing lots of different interesting things from, um, you know, um, obviously financial markets to headhunting to um, uh, actually running holistic education business. And now what I do is um, I run a future ready consultancy. So we travel around the world and uh, we prepare governments and institutions and corporates for the age of disruption and AI through teaching them what we call deep human skills. That covers a lot. Yeah. So how do you focus in on the areas that you think are most pertinent given the changes that are occurring in the world today? Yeah, so, um, well, maybe if we take a step backwards, I think the most relevant part of my career journey was actually when I made uh, the, the jump into um, university education. And what happened about four years ago was that um, the National University of Singapore was looking for a change agent. I don't know if you know much about the National University of Singapore, but it essentially takes in about 15% of the entire youth's birth cohort. So in American terms, it's like saying like the whole of California, the whole of, uh, you know, goes to uh, one university. Actually, it, it's quite a big responsibility being um, in charge of that, you know, a percentage of the entire country's youth. So at that point of time, the university uh, was looking for a change agent because they had a problem. And the problem was essentially that they were starting to hear from employers that 
the students were coming out of the university, but they weren't equipped to handle the real world. So employers were giving feedback like, you know, the students struggle in the, once the students graduate uh, or they come for internships, they really struggle with um, ambiguity. They need to be told which direction to go. They don't really have the soft skills that, you know, is, are needed of them in the, in the real world. So um, the employers were saying, well, the universities tend to overfocus on the hard skills, the hard competencies, but we're not concerned so much about that because as soon as you graduate from university, you know, what you've learned in terms of technical competencies is pretty much obsolete. Were those legitimate um, concerns or had education actually changed in such a way where the soft skills were being sidelined for the hard skills? Yeah, so um, I think what's happened over the past few decades has been, especially in Asia, it's been like an arms race for grades. And, uh, you know, what's been happening is that universities have been, and, and even other institutions, they've been chasing rankings. So there's been this obsession about like, you know, the hard kind of uh, metrics, like how much, you, uh, how much you're gonna score on an exam and, and this and that. So the, because the, what, and, and sorry, just to wind up a little bit on, on that, it means that teachers overteach, teach um, we overstructure. And by the time the students graduate from a highly overstructured, overtaught environment, and they get released into the real world, which is so ambiguous, there are no directions, no rules, they really struggle with that. So, so you're saying when you're over-teaching, over-engineering, you mean that they're trying to embed them with certain knowledge in order for them to enter the world and therefore be seen as more effective? Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at um, a t typical Singaporean student's life, um, there is barely any free time at all. Every 15 minute, 30 minute block, there is, you know, some sort of structure, some sort of, you know, it's, it's filled with some sort of objective. More so, more, more so now than before? Much more so, because like I said, it's, it's been an arms race and like parents are ever more obsessed, uh, you know, um, the general trend is that parents are ever more obsessed about like getting their kids into tuition classes and, you know, get, it's becoming more competitive. The world is generally becoming more competitive. So in the past, a university degree meant something. It meant that, wow, you have a degree, you're pretty smart. Nowadays, degrees are a dime a dozen. So it's no longer enough just to have a degree. You have to have the best degree. You have to have the best grades in the best school and so forth. And parents are applying unprecedented levels of uh, helicopter parenting and mm. also pressure on the kids. And as a result, we are seeing like a huge increase in terms of anxiety or even depression and like number of students seeking universe, uh, counseling support services in universities, the general trend has been a 30% increase over the recent years. You know, it, I, I see it for the high school years, the pressure on to get into that university or that program. But once you're in university, what surprises me is then the pressure continues and the teachers, as you say, are over teaching to the point where the employers are saying, I think that these people aren't entirely prepared for the workplace. Mm -hmm. So where is that pressure coming from? It's not coming from the parents, is it? A lot of it is coming from the parents, and I think it's kind of misguided as well, because you see, the recipe for success has changed radically over the past few years in the age of AI and disruption. Anything that has rules, anything that has processes can in future be done by robots, right? So in the past, parents uh, you know, said to kids, the recipe for success is you know, study really hard, 
work really hard, follow the rules, don't ask questions, and that's the recipe for success. But in the brave new world, that's the recipe for being made redundant and having your job replaced by a robot. Do parents know that? That's filtering through, so therefore they're changing the level or the kinds of pressures are now changing as well? It's very hard um, to actually reverse like the, the, the Queen Mary. It's like this huge you know, uh, education system that's been built on the back of compliance. If you think about it in Asia, how we teach kids is essentially we, we train them in schools to comply. And that's actually like training them to be obsolete because nobody can do compliance better than a robot. So suddenly, over, over the past five years, we suddenly see university uh, institutions, not just in Asia, but globally realize that, oh no, in five years time, or even now, we're starting to see AI do all the kind of compliance-based stuff and follow all the rules. And now what we need students to do is actually the opposite. We need them to focus on the stuff the robots find really hard. That's the stuff like, you know, challenging, provoking. It's not problem solving, it's problem identification, which is a, is a much harder a skill. Like a robot can solve a problem, but a human has to identify the problem with insight. So we're seeing a lot of, of schools focus on things like creativity or, or at least starting to have conversations around how can we shift this curriculum so that it's you know, away from the industrial revolution, sort of like, you know, making students conform, comply and road drilling into like that, that quintessentially deep human stuff that robots can't do. You know, Crystal, you were talking about, you know, deeply embedded cultural constructs that actually inform uh, societies and education systems and the way that people conduct themselves. Where in the world do you begin to undo this or start to chip away at it in order to see the result that's required, not future, not 15, 20 years from now, but now? Where do you begin? So I think actually it requires the entire ecosystem to be educated simultaneously and to have some sort of momentum around it. So one example uh, of how the Singapore government is doing this is uh, five years ago in 2015, uh, when they announced the budget, the ministers, uh, actually uh, Deputy Prime Minister Taman actually came out and said, you know, we're launching this billion dollar initiative called Skills Future. We've all realized that all of you are at risk of being displaced at work, whether you're 30 or whether you're 60, you're all at risk because robots are coming, AI is coming. So um, tomorrow when all of you Singaporeans wake up, I'm paraphrasing, all of you will have a $500 SING credit in your SkillsFuture account and you're going to be able to use that money to reskill yourselves and, you know, and start retraining yourself. So, um, you know, it, that was the, the government's effort at trying to start this whole like momentum about like lifelong learning and reinvention. And then what the Ministry of Education did was they started campaigning, uh, you know, parents and trying to get them to understand that we need to move away from grades. But of course, there was an inevitable backlash because the parents were saying, well, hello, like you fed us this beautiful lie, right? <laughs> For years, yeah. we've been investing in tuition and like, you know, we've like uprooted our house to stay next to the school and all kinds of things and now you're telling us that you know grades aren't what on earth is going on so education ministry also kind of realized that we can't just suddenly chop and change uh, on, a, on, a, on an important policy like that you actually 
need to do simultaneous education. And then, you know, as we are re-educating the parents and the general public, we need to also then, you know, move this, turn this mighty ship around. The third pillar, I think, um, other than government uh, uh, and, and education, the third pillar is actually... Can I ask you a question about sure. government first? Sure, of course. Uh, how's that gone? I mean, given, given since 2015 and these changes and the $500 fund for, for retooling, mm-hmm. is, is it succeeding? Yeah, it's really interesting. Yes and no. I think uh, critics would say that, hey, you know, only like, I think at the last last time I looked, less than 20% of Singaporeans had actually made use of that skills future credit. Mm. And I think some critics would say that, oh, the, the courses that you can take um, are a lot about hard skills. So it's like, how do you operate this whatever piece of, or how do you code or how do you, you know, make a vase or something, right? Hard skills, right? Can't bake a cake or something, yeah. right? But, they're un- uh, but if you actually understand how... Uh, the root of the problem, in my opinion, the root of the problem is not necessarily skills. The root of the problem is actually mindset. So for instance, Steve, I could say, Steve, come from my amazing course um, tomorrow and you could be in that room for six hours and you could leave the room and you couldn't have, uh, you could just go back to your normal life not having changed at all. Mm-hmm. The, um, the, the real question is, has your mindset actually shifted? And that's the hard work because for a lot of these so-called smart government initiatives, right? The ideas are great, but when it comes to the implementation, because the mindset hasn't shifted, you see people like coming back to the same problem. So for example, when we had smart government, uh, smart nation in Singapore, um, for instance, I think there was one example where um, old folks were given certain like, you know, smart, cameras or things at home and then like um, to monitor them and keep tab on, on their health and then they started using them as like hangers to hang their clothes on <laughs> or they started using them you know putting masking tape pieces on them or all kinds of things because like the mindset wasn't there right so, so well intentioned but uh in the execution comes up a bit short yeah absolutely mm. so you, i don't want to take you off from the third pillar you were about to talk about the third pillar yeah so the third pillar really is the employers And I think this part is really important. Why do uh, people keep on doing the things that they do? Uh, Like for instance, why do parents think a Harvard education is important? Why do do people think it's important to go to Ivy League school? The the idea is that, you know, when you go to, you have a certain kind of education, it opens the doors to certain kinds of job opportunities. Well, you have a theory on this, the three elements, right? Yeah, so I was thinking the other day about um, why do you need to go to university and what actually is the purpose of going to university? Can it be replaced as a structure? And I think really there's three fundamental reasons why people go to, to university. The first one is to gain skills, right? Um, but we can all argue that universities traditional universities aren't the best way to learn skills. Some people argue the best way is actually to learn by uh, taking up jobs or internships or real world projects. And that's why you see things like, you know, Peter Thiel offering like 100,000 US to people who want to drop out of school to actually start, you know, rolling up their sleeves and solving real world problems. Yeah, on the condition they don't go to university. Absolutely. Yeah. So there's a big argument for universities actually being some of the worst places to learn skills mm. because most traditional universities use like a passive lecture format for most of their education theory 
scary. Mm. And if you actually look at the research on how your brain learns, I, I, um, the passive lecture format is almost like the brain activity is almost like you're sleeping. You might as well be sleeping in your lecture theater because like that's how engaged most of the students are. And if you tra track the learning retention, um, a passive lecture format, you know, most students aren't able to remember more than 10%, like 10 months later. So, you know, universities arguably aren't doing a great job with teaching skills. And also a big part of the reason is that the curriculum is designed by professors, many of whom have never worked in inverted commas, the real world, and aren't current about the kinds of skills mm. that the students actually need for this very dynamic world. So what's the second aspect of why somebody theoretically should go to university? Yeah, the second aspect is signaling okay and by signaling this is a term that behavioral economists use it's like when i say i went to harvard it signals to employers that i'm smart uh, you know, I'm probably quite sophisticated. I'm good at certain things. If I say I went to Stanford, it signals certain things about me. So university actually does quite a reasonable job at signaling. It's like shorthand to employers or to the general public that I'm, I'm this type of person. It's fashion. It's brand awareness. Exactly. It's mm. like part of your personal branding. I went to Harvard. I went to Wharton. But then, you know, when you get underneath that, it's like, is that the only way of signaling to other people who you're about? I don't think so. And um, actually in the world of the future, we're also looking at people who've broken that mold. Their signaling is like, you know, I went to green school and by 14 years old, I created this amazing startup. Look at my portfolio of this and that. And I've done all this stuff and I've listed a company, whatever, right? There's different ways of signaling to the world that you are bright and you're capable. Is the world receiving it that way? Is it, is it come or has it, it reached that inflection point where people are now starting to say, at least from the signaling front, that it's no longer as necessary as we once thought? I think you're slowly seeing um, uh, the signaling element uh, becoming less important. So for instance, we are seeing um, big employers, like um, two of the big four accounting firms came out and said, well, we're not going to look at grades anymore because our research suggests that it's not relevant. So we're seeing um, uh, other companies like in Singapore, one of the largest hedge funds here has just said, well, we're going to start this um, program where we're going to hire 10% of our, our staff from non-university, uh, you know, uh, paths. And actually our belief is that these guys are going to be hungrier. They're going to be like more resilient and we're going to actually do research on this and we're going to prove our point. So as, as time goes by and the more prestigious employers say, well, look at our research, it doesn't mean anything, then we're going to we're going to see society's perceptions mm -hmm. on, on, on that, you know, start to reshift and reshape. So I think that the, the third pillar is uh, actually perhaps the most important. And this is why one might consider going to a university. Yeah. So the third reason why somebody might think a university education is still really relevant. The third S is actually social, social networks. And I think there's a, a degree of validity to this because this is community. It's community. It's 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 network. Because um, what we do know is that we're living in this age of hyperconnection and hyperconnectivity and ecosystems. So we're looking at a lot of um, career success happen through happenstance. 
So it's just like, you know, Steve, you and I, we met just like how we met. We happened to be around in this particular forum. Then we happened to be chatting and we found out that we had certain interests and then boom. And then suddenly we're sitting and doing this collaboration together. Success by proximity. Exactly. Mm. So when you in the university, you're actually in a kind of there's this highly artificial construct where you're living together with a whole bunch of other people and you're intensely exposed to them and you're part of this very big community. Now the question is, can we simulate this in a non-university context? And I'm sure there are avenues of doing this and I don't think universities are necessarily uh, the best place, places of um, you know building these ecosystems. Like for instance, you know, if people, if there was some sort of structure where um, people actually went off like a tribe and they actually traveled you know, together to different countries and lived and worked there. And in fact, this is what Minerva Project, another sort of new university model is doing, where the students actually live and work in seven different countries over the four years. You know, I think that, you know, different alternative models can actually come up with much uh, more interesting ways of social networking and creating these ecosystems. So in your assessment, looking back over the three pillars, mm -hmm. uh, which is skills, uh, uh, signaling, mm -hmm. and then also having something in the, in the area of social networks, mm -hmm. in your estimation, where do universities still stack up and where do they fall short? Yeah, I think universities have to do a lot on the skills front. I think we're hearing increasingly from employers that uh, you know, there's a huge skills gap. So Gar uh, Gallup did this piece of research recently where they interviewed employers and they also interviewed um, university uh, chief academic officers. And they asked them, does university prepare students for the real world? So 90% of the university senior management said, yes, of course it does. But employers, only 11% of them agreed. So that's what we mean by the skills gap. The employer saying that, no, you guys aren't teaching them the stuff that they need for the real world. And universities kind of pretending, like having the ostrich in the, the sand uh, situation where they're like, oh, look at our rankings, you know, bright, shiny object over here. Look at the rankings, look at the research. But the real world saying, you know, I didn't send my kids to university, you know, so that you know they could they could come out and 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 like contribute to your rankings. We sent them so that they could learn something. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. So what? Is, so in in your in the final uh, assessment of this, mm -hmm. really the point you're making here is that universities may have either they either need to reinvent themselves mm -hmm. fundamentally, mm -hmm. or there are other alternatives that are popping up in the world today that didn't exist before. Which means that parents, institutions, organizations, governments should get on board and realize it's not about the the almighty degree? I think firstly, universities uh, need to understand what is their unique value proposition. Mm -hmm. And that's going to be something that uh, is very different for each university. I think millennials really demand that. They don't want just to go to a university. They want to like join a mission. So like, for example, Green School, it's a very clear sort of cultural tribe of people who are connected to a certain sort of bunch of values. And that really comes through in everything they do. So same from Minerva. They are like, if you join Minerva, it, you're a global person, you care very deeply about these sort of causes and that sort of thing. So every university has to, and some universities already do this very well, but 
you know, in Asia, the vast majority of universities don't really have that point of differentiation. Is this, is this experimental phase happening more at that secondary school level where perhaps the stakes aren't so high? And are universities holding off to see how that goes before they commit because of the enormous type of sacrifices they made to get their structures just so? Yeah, I think um, the problem is that uh, the, the, the formula for success is such a comfort blanket for universities. And nobody uh, actually wants to tinker with the formula for success. So a lot of the, the old and established incumbent universities, uh, you know, they've got a precedent and the, pre and the precedent says, well, look, I'm number one in the rankings and I've always been number one. And if I change anything and the university ranking drops, then it's going to be my fault and people are going to say why did you mess with a good thing but then you know the flip side of the argument is if i don't change anything then i'm destined for for failure right you know we live in these empirical times when engineering is is the great you know mantra and, and if we and, and it's almost like parents are engineering their children to succeed and yet ironically everybody talks about failure the importance mm -hmm. of failure failing yeah. fast mm -hmm. I mean, you hear it all the time ripping off the lips of entrepreneurs and billionaires around the world and yet that's exactly what we're not doing we're not allowing children to experiment mm -hmm. to fail to fall down get up try it again without any criticism what's going on I'm going to use a phrase that I just heard from a professor that whom I met from Boston University. His name was Scott Solberg. And he said, well, we're not prepared to let our kids play on dangerous playgrounds. And that is so true. As a parent myself, I want them to be resilient. But am I going to let them play on a playground with a rusty spike that might give them tetanus if they fall off the, the jungle gym? So I, I think the biggest problem is that resilience is a muscle, mm. right? And if you want people to be resilient, you really need uh, to have a certain um, comfort level, a, a certain suffering tolerance, you, be, uh, you know, to be able to let your kids fall down and get up by themselves. A lot of times what happens with parents these days, and this is just my own personal view, is that they are unable to manage their own feelings of discomfort and they are unable to self-soothe when they see their kids fall down. And therefore, they, before the kids even hit the, the ground, they dive in and they catch the child and they say, there, you stand up now, right? And actually, one of the, one of, one of the stories I like to tell is that once when I was talking about resilience, I had a student, a, a male student that was actually really angry. And he said to me that he was very frustrated because he's so fed up of hearing people talk about failure. And I said, tell me a little bit more. And he said, well, the thing is that if you keep on saying failure is a muscle that you build every time you fall and you get up, he said every single uh, time that he got close to a failure, his teachers would tell him, oh, you don't seem to be doing well in that subject. You should drop it. You know, or his parents would say, oh, honey, it doesn't seem like that's your thing. You should drop that. Mm -hmm. And he's like, you know, even before we have the chance to hit the floor, we're never allowed to try to be bad at anything. So what's changed? Is this because the world now sees everything swirling around us with the internet, access to information? It feels like a terrifying, dangerous place. And therefore, parents, teachers, institutions are running in to rescue people because it feels dangerous. But is it, in fact, any more dangerous than it was 50, 100 years ago? The research would suggest no. The world has never been more safe, but the research will also suggest that people have never felt more unsafe. Mm -hmm. So there is a, 
there's a big cognitive disparity between people's feelings of lack of trust, lack of psychological safety. There's a lot of data that shows that trust levels in general in the public are at an all-time low, right? So um, if you don't have psychological safety, it's really hard for parents to loosen up about their kids trying different things. And also for kids, they grew up in such an environment of anxiety. Well, let's bring it right back to Singapore then. Mm -hmm. One of the safest cities on earth, one of the most incredibly um, privileged environments I've ever lived in in my life. Mm -hmm. And you have all of the, you have governments, parents, institutions, healthcare, Mm -hmm. everybody is wrapped around. It could not feel or be safer. Why then, if that's the case, is there resistance to allow people to test themselves and fail in a safe zone? There's this sort of um, deeply entrenched cultural um, uh, climate where challenging or asking questions is is dangerous. Mm. Yeah. Well, by extension, then, if you went to the most lawless and rule-less places in the world, like Nigeria, for mm-hmm. instance, mm-hmm. where there, you know, there is no rule of law and there is no uh, ability to do anything except for fend for yourself, mm-hmm. shouldn't that, in theory, be one of the most successful markets on earth? Well, if you look at the rates of entrepreneurship, right, some of the most entrepreneurial countries are places like uh, Vietnam, for example, right? Um, uh, You know, you have uh, places like Philippines, right? Um, These sort of emerging economies, they're not like Silicon Valley innovation as or entrepreneurship as we would think of them. But, you know, they are actually up up there in the top 10 most entrepreneurial countries in in, in the world. And that's because there's this sort of like can-do spirit there's not this idea that I've got the, you know, there's, there's this kind of mentality almost like I'm going to fend for myself. If I don't look out for myself, no one will. Whereas in Singapore, we have the opposite. We have this entitlement. The government has always given us all this amazing stuff, right? If we've got a problem, Singaporeans are notorious championship grumblers. We'll complain, we'll whine, we'll write letters, we'll talk about it and all of that sort of thing, right? But there's this expectation that the government shall provide. And, uh, you know, in, in a way, the government hasn't really let Singapore down for the past you know, 50 years. Uh, We've been quite an economic success story um, going from third world to first world within one generation. Um, So again, the Singaporean mentality is kind of like, well, if it ain't broke, why fix it? And we got this way through following, complying, being obedient, you know, not uh, going along with what the, the, our authoritarian figureheads said to us. And in a sense, like China's kind of similar. So of all challenges that I've come across Mm -hmm. in almost any sector, truly education feels like one of the biggest. Mm -hmm. The way you've just so beautifully articulated the situation here and many other markets around the world, how knowing what you know and seeing what you see, would you uh, argue for changing the system to generate a more productive, engaged workforce in the near future? I think that if you really want change in something as deeply entrenched and as intractable as the higher education space can be, you need to first make people really uncomfortable because comfort is the enemy of change in the education world. I think the best way to go uh, about doing it is to, like uh, personally, how I went about doing it was I got really influential stakeholders, like, you know, employer CEOs of major regional banks and firms to basically say uh, to university senior management, I'm not going to 
you know, uh, these are the problems that, that that we're facing now, and they're severe. And I'm and and once the university senior management heard from the horse's mouth from all these employers saying that you know some of these students are unhirable because of X Y Z, then they start realizing, okay, well, we need to fix this problem really fast. Yeah, I'm uncomfortable with that. Now we'll make a move. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because you know. Um, people are not um, going to make a change with a tinker with a success formula if there isn't a good reason for tinkering with it. So the only way that universities are going to move away from doing the same old lecture system, you know, don't fix it, we're earning so much money, is to actually light a fire underneath their arses and say like, well, look, this is this is what's going on. And the major thought leaders in um, in terms of employers, the major tastemakers in the intellectuals, you know, all these... Um, sort of thought leaders are coming together and saying that you, what you're doing isn't working and something needs to change. And by the way, there are all these other alternatives we can hire um, from, you know, using our own, uh, you know, programs for, um, you know, and that's that's actually uh, coming to that. That's a, that's a big thing. One of one of the key threats to universities is employers coming up with their own selection systems for uh, assessing candidates to hire. Right. Because once employers can say, well, I don't want to use university grades or, you know, anymore as a, as, a, as a first rough cut to decide who I should hire. There's a much better system. I've got this sort of system where I can use AI to identify great candidates or I can run a simulation or I can run a hackathon. And I'm actually going to get better quality people regardless of the university degrees. Then, you know, people are going to uh, university management is really going to sit up and take notice. So if enough pressure builds from the outside, from those who will determine the success of these uh, graduates, then the, the small isolated bubble called academia will burst. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, the, uh, in terms of universities, um, I think for their hiring policies as well, if we see um, them start to hire uh, academics who are actually much more in touch with the real world or even, uh, you know, start doing these more industry collaborations where they have so much more uh, real life problems to solve, uh, then we're going to see a much more interesting and a relevant university culture. Crystal, fascinating. You have your work cut out for you. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. That was my conversation with Crystal Lim Lange, founder and CEO of Singapore-based Forest Wolf. She and her husband created a business to offer future-ready consultancy, leadership training, and personal development for students and employees grappling with an array of modern-day challenges. My conversation with Crystal left me with more questions than answers, releasing in Pandora box fashion a stream of insights that now hang over the world of education like purple haze. So here it goes, my Asia Insider take for the week where I reflect on the conversation you just heard and pose a few thoughts of my own. The pervasive appeal of higher education at any cost feels more like a universal social conundrum than a matter of simple value for money. In our status-conscious world, for reasons that elude the empirical mind, demand for access to elite institutions continues to rise. Witness this year's U.S. college admissions bribery scandal, nicknamed Operation Varsity Blue. In March, FBI agents unearthed evidence to show that at least 50 families paid intermediaries more than 25 million U.S. dollars in bribes to guarantee college admission for their children at select schools. 
Influence peddling is nothing new. But when you consider the already astronomical price of U.S. college tuition, then consider what some people are apparently willing to pay, it begs two questions. First, what's going on with the perceived value of select university education? And second, is education little more than fashion, something worthy of flaunting? My guest, Crystal Lim Lange, has her theory. She calls it the three S's. Skills, signaling, and social networks, she says, are the three amigos behind the persistent appeal for top university admission. With the exception of the first, the other two are questionable reasons for pursuing higher education and a long cry away from how higher education sees itself. How did this massive disconnect come about? And how founded is the idea that bragging rights and affiliation gain you more success in the world than the simple rigors of learning and research? Here's my take. The public pervasiveness of social networking and looking good has whittled its way into the hallowed halls of our most laudatory academic institutions. So much so that for some, Harvard is a fashion statement, Princeton is a bumper sticker, Stanford is a golden ticket to Silicon Valley, and Yale, oh yes Yale, that can earn you a U.S. presidency. I'm being facetious, but like so many things, impressions and perceptions aren't always clear indicators of what really is. Sure, your odds may go up on the success factor if you attend a U.S. Ivy League, but there's nothing close to a guarantee. In fact, the world is showing us day in and day out that dropouts and self-educated mavens are doing as much, if not more, to innovate, succeed, and change the world. You can't package and sell that, can you? Some people are simply more talented and self-motivated than others. So what's left for us? Should top universities simply acquiesce to the idea that they're little more than a gathering place for social mavens and billionaire wannabes? Or should they respond to a higher calling, reassess their obsession with ratings and rankings, and focus on reinventing education to genuinely equip new generations with the ability to grapple with the big issues like climate change, political overreach, and artificial intelligence? I'm being overly harsh. Universities are chock-a-block with great programs and committed educators, and there's nothing fundamentally wrong with wanting to be the best. But here's the thing. Universities are no less subject to the forces of disruption than any other sector in the world today. Banks, insurers, retailers, and telecommunications companies are all in the throes of remaining relevant to consumers. Universities are no different. So if the signals from the marketplace are telling you that the students coming out of the system are ill-equipped, it's time to listen. And on that note, we thank you for listening to this Inside Asia podcast. I'm Steve Stein, inviting you to download this or any of our other 88 episodes. You can visit us at www.insideasiapodcast.com or subscribe by visiting iTunes or Stitcher. Search for Inside Asia, Flick the subscribe button and start listening. It's completely free and we'd hate for you to miss out on our future episodes. Until next time, this is Steve Stein saying, coming from the outside on Inside Asia. Inside Asia is supported in part by Black Marketing, the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing agency, created and led by the world's most recommended LinkedIn marketing masterclass instructor, entrepreneur, and best-selling author, Chris J. Reed. Black Marketing is an award-winning, independent, boutique, B2B marketing consultancy that specializes in enabling you to achieve your business objectives through LinkedIn. Learn more at www.blackmarketing.com.